Looking to step up your Mother's Day flowers? The Home Depot has an idea. Let Mom's Green Thumb do some digging with colorful flowers, pots, and premium soils to bring out the most in her patios, walkways, and gardens. Right now, get Vigoro Potting Soil just $8.97 for strong, healthy, vibrant plants, indoors and outside. Shop our wide selection online and pick up your order in-store and give Mom the gift of a beautiful garden. Get Vigoro Potting Soil just $8.97 at the Home Depot. How doers get more done. See homedepot.com slash delivery for details. Discover why critics are calling Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes, the best film of the franchise. What a wonderful day! It's a jaw-dropping spectacle that demands to be seen on the biggest screen possible. I need to go. Hang on. It is our time. Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes, now playing only in theaters. Tickets on sale now. Rated PG-13. Some material may be inappropriate for children under 13. Grammar Girl here. I'm Mignon Fogarty, and you can think of me as your friendly guide to the English language. We talk about writing, history, rules, and cool stuff. Today, in honor of National Novel Writing Month, we'll talk about how to start your novel. And then I'll help you remember the difference between the words hilarious and hysterical. When you're rolling on the floor laughing, describe the joke as hilarious, not hysterical. Hilarious means roughly super funny. It comes from a Greek word meaning cheerful. Pandas are hilarious. I love to watch videos of them rolling down hills. They make me laugh every time. And if you listen to last week's episode about continuous versus continual, you'll note that hilarious ends with the same O-U-S suffix we talked about at the end of continuous, which means nonstop. Panda videos are continuously hilarious, at least to me. Hysterical means excited. It comes from the same root as hysteria, from the Greek word meaning womb, coming from the idea, harumph, that only women were emotionally excitable. And I love this, we also used to have the adjective hysterici in American English. Here's an example the Oxford English Dictionary lists from the novel The Thin Red Line. He had had a strange, hysterical encounter with his clerk Fife on the march. And some kinds of laughter truly can be hysterical. If people are so uncomfortable they laugh in an inappropriate situation, like at a funeral or while they're being robbed, that is most likely hysterical laughter. Edam Online reports that people started using hysterical to mean funny in the late 1930s from the idea of people having uncontrollable fits of laughter. But some sources tag this use as informal or even sexist when applied to women. If you decide that you want to avoid using the word hysterical to mean funny, you can remember the difference between the words by thinking of the word hysterectomy when you think of hysterical to remember the root. And a woman who needs a hysterectomy is likely to be worried, so that's not funny. Finally, while researching this topic, I started wondering about the word histrionics, which sounds kind of like hysterical and has a similar meaning. But that word comes from the Latin for actor, and someone who's displaying histrionics is acting. Histrionics can carry a sense of over-the-top theatrics, but it's not related to hysterical in any way. Take a moment to consider the importance of your opening sentences. 
After all, if the first few seconds today don't grab your attention, you'll probably click right out without another thought, right? But please don't. Well, the same goes for books. The first few pages of a book are do or die. Get it right and readers will be intrigued enough to stick around for more. Get it wrong and they will skedaddle right out of there. If the vast majority of readers start judging a book by its cover, then they make their final rulings by the book's opening scenes. Especially for writers who are off to the NaNoWriMo races right now, it's more crucial than ever to know how to put your best foot forward with your novel. Here are seven steps that will help you pull off the perfect opening scene. Step one is to think about your novel as a whole. Imagine yourself as a painter in front of a blank canvas. You may not be able to envision the entire composition yet, but you should know roughly when to reach for yellow paint or blue paint. This is exactly the kind of grip you want to get on your novel before you begin. In other words, you don't need to plan out every single plot point in your book before you start writing. But you should seriously start thinking about how you want the sum of the parts to come across. This way, you'll be able to write an opening that effectively sets the tone for the rest of your book. To make sure that you're striking this perfect tone right from the onset, ask yourself, what genre am I writing in? A fast-paced spy thriller with a shootout in every other chapter, for example, might jump into an action sequence right off the bat. And ask, what kind of expectations do I want to set? For example, the opening chapter of Pride and Prejudice tells the reader to expect a witty comedy of manners through the strength and acuity of Jane Austen's prose and dialogue. Step two is pick a point of view. So now you know the tone you want to strike in your novel, how are you going to execute it? A big part of that execution will come down to three words, point of view. Broadly speaking, there are four major types of POV. First person uses I and we pronouns. For example, The Hunger Games and Huckleberry Finn use first person. Second person uses the you pronoun. For example, Bright Lights Big City and The Fifth Season used second person point of view. Omniscient third person uses third person pronouns, such as he and she, to relate to the story as an all-knowing narrator. For example, Brokeback Mountain and The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy used omniscient third person point of view. And finally, limited third person uses third person pronouns like he and she to relate the story from a single character's perspective. For example, The Giver and I Am Legend used limited third-person point of view. Each POV has its strengths and weaknesses, but just remember, no matter what, the point of view you pick should serve the needs of your story. Are you writing a quirky, relatable young adult novel? Then definitely consider first-person narration so that readers can get to know your utterly unique protagonist up close and personal. But if you want to conduct multiple character studies in your literary novel, then third-person omniscient is probably the way to go because it lets the reader slip into the minds of many characters. Step three is to craft a killer opening line. Now that you've established the tone and point of view for your book's opening, you've arrived at the fun part. This is where you get to do what you do best, put pen to paper and write your first sentence. 
But let's just clear up one thing first. There's no single formula to crafting an awesome opening sentence. You can disconcert the reader, just as George Orwell did in 1984. It was a bright, cold day in April, and the clocks were striking 13. Or you can begin with a commanding voice, similar to Herman Melville. This is where the tone that you considered in the first step will come into play. Call me Ishmael. Or you can appeal to the reader's innate sense of curiosity, as Gabriel Garcia Marquez did in A Hundred Years of Solitude. Many years later, as he faced the firing squad, Colonel Orleano Buendia was to remember that distant afternoon when his father took him to discover ice. Or you can write compellingly, poetically, and set the scene like Toni Morrison. Quiet as it's kept, there were no marigolds in the fall of 1941. If you get stuck, just know that you're not alone. Here's what John Steinbeck once said about first sentences. Quote, I suffer, as always, from the fear of putting down the first line. It's amazing the terrors, the magics, the prayers, the straightening shyness that assail one. It's as though the words were not only indelible, but that they spread out like dye in water and color everything around them, unquote. But you can and should experiment until your opening sentence rings true to you. For those who may still be struggling, turn to T.C. Boyle's advice for writing a memorable opening sentence. Quote, the first lines are provocative, I suppose, because they're meant not simply to provoke the reader, but to provoke the writer, in this instance me, to forge on, unquote. In a nutshell, in order to engage readers, you must first attempt to engage yourself. Step four is to bring out the characters. As Shakespeare once said, all the world's a stage and all the men and women merely players. And if your book is a small stage of its own, you'll want to start bringing out your cast of players fairly early. This is going to be the first time your audience meets your characters. So remember, first impressions are important. Your character development stems from these first few moments, so make them count. Let's quickly cover two key don'ts to keep in mind as you said about bringing your characters to life and what you should do instead to counteract them. First, don't start with physical character descriptions. Spoiler alert, readers come for a good story, not a modeling portfolio. Long spiels describing your character's piercing gray eyes and 6'1 stature will probably put your audience to sleep quicker than NyQuil. Instead, do make sure your characters come on stage doing something that's actually reflective of their personality, and that doesn't include gazing at their own reflection, unless, of course, they're incurably vain. And second, don't introduce too many characters all at once. Think about Game of Thrones and the cast that George R. R. Martin juggles. If he dropped all gazillion characters on you right in the opening chapter, you'd probably be feeling a bit besieged yourself, right? Similarly, if you allow too many of your own characters to get on stage right away, your reader will struggle to keep up with their names, not to mention the story itself. Instead, do be selective about the characters you introduce in your opening chapters, as well as when they make their entrances. Step six is to set up the stakes. Don't forget that a character without stakes is like a car without an engine. 
An engineless car might be pretty to look at, but it won't actually go anywhere. Likewise, a character without stakes won't be able to take your story very far. To continue the vehicular metaphor, they'll simply have no drive. Setting up the stakes will come down to showing the reader what your character wants right from the get-go. Does your protagonist want to overthrow the authoritarian regime? Or do they want to get into a university? Note that these are not the only two options, despite what dystopian young adult might have you think. Whatever it is, it must matter deeply to the character in order for it to matter to the audience. So do establish this right at the outset of your novel, so that you can begin creating the conflict and tension that will propel the rest of the story forward. And step seven is revisit your opening as your novel evolves. Don't forget that once you've written the beginning of your novel, including the inciting incident and all, you're not stuck with it forever. In fact, you should revisit it as your story develops. To ensure your opening scene still makes sense in the context of your whole book, work your way through this checklist when it's time to revise. Does the tone of your opening still fit? The premise and even the genre of your novel can change as you write, so you want to make sure your opening isn't an artifact of a very old draft. Are you giving the right background info? Like your genre, your setting can evolve as you write. For instance, you might end up tinkering with your world building by the final third of your book. This is why you should absolutely make sure that your opening takes any changes into account, even if it's only to avoid mentioning minor details that have since become irrelevant. And finally, is your characterization consistent? Every once in a while, go back and spend some time again with everyone who appears in your opening scene. Is each character portrayed in a way that's consistent with their behavior in the rest of the book? Or if not, is there a good reason for it? The key is to keep polishing until you've got an opening that fulfills you and fits your story. It might take a revision or two, and maybe even several, but keep at it and you'll end up with a beginning that'll make readers eager to read to the end. That segment was written by Jessica Kim and is based on Reed Z's How to Start a Novel post. It appears here with permission. And Jessica is a contributing writer for Reed Z, a digital marketplace that connects authors with the best professionals in publishing. Join Reed Z to work on an exciting book project today. Finally, I have a familect story from Crystal with a slight holiday theme. Hi, Mignon. I'm Crystal from Athens, Alabama. When Pictionary was new and I was very young, my family and I played that game a lot. During a particular game, one of my brothers began drawing a horse with emphasis on his hairy ankles. It was my team's turn to guess, and it occurred to me that he was drawing the Clydesdale. I wasn't very familiar with that word, evidenced by my screaming out, Cloppendale. I had no idea why everyone was laughing so hard until someone pointed out that I had said Cloppendale, meaning Clydesdale. However, since then, my family calls all horses Cloppendales, and I still get mocked for it. But didn't I unwittingly invent my own onomatopoeia? Thank you for this excellent podcast and network. Thank you, Crystal. And if you're young or you aren't from the United States, you may wonder why I mentioned a holiday theme. Well, for many, many years, decades, Budweiser Beer ran Christmas commercials that featured Clydesdale horses clomping along, decked out in bells and Christmassy scenes through the snow, pulling red sleighs, and so on. The commercials were part of the whole Christmas entertainment season, and they may be the only place I ever actually saw Clydesdale horses, except maybe at a state fair once or twice. But I really know what they are because of those commercials. 
I can't hear the word Clydesdale without thinking of Christmas. And Cloppendale definitely fits. And I do think it's an onomatopoeia, a word that mimics the sound something makes, because their hooves definitely clop. Thanks for the call. And if you want to tell me the story of a word your family and only your family uses, leave me a voicemail at 833214GIRL. And that number is also in my email newsletter, which you can sign up for at quickanddirtytips.com. I'm Mignon Fogarty, better known as Grammar Girl. Thanks to my producer, Nathan Sims. And that's all. Thanks for listening. With chocolate treats mixed into dark chocolate ice cream, the Tillamook Chocolate Collection is a chocolate game changer. Because the thing that pairs best with chocolate is more chocolate. Tillamook Chocolate Collection Ice Cream. Extraordinary Dairy. Sometimes it takes a different approach to help you unlock your true potential. With Capella University's game-changing FlexPath learning format, you gain relevant skills you can apply to your career right away. Earn your degree from an accredited university and be confident in the quality of your education. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. Capella University is accredited by the Higher Learning Commission. Learn more at capella.edu slash accreditation.